In the sports world, some teams have all the talent they need to win championships, but oftentimes they can't seem to put it all together to be the last team standing at the end of the season. On the other hand, there have been moments when the most unlikely teams come together to shock the world. But when you look back, their success is not so surprising. It's simply that their culture, their togetherness was underrated. Championship teams don't just appear. Instead, they are built. Company cultures are a lot like teams. Winning is the work and work must get done. This is especially true when complex software products have to be created that solve problems for customers. Himanshu Palsale, the president and chief product and technology officer at Epicor, explains how the team works together at Epicor. We operate pretty flat, including our CEO, Steve Murphy, who's a process engineer himself. We are all roll up your sleeves and go talk to the person who has the answer versus sort of go down a hierarchy of people. If you want to succeed at Epicor, you need to be comfortable with that. Part of building a great team is when leaders are members of the team too, and not above it. And everyone works together. Another aspect of being on a successful team is being able to define what the team does well, stick to the core identity, and then having respect for the other teams, for what they do best. Every game is a series of problems and then solutions. Solve enough problems and the game is won. Great teams create cultures that identify each problem correctly and then work together to solve them. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Himanshu discusses how the Epicor team works together to provide enterprise resource planning software, or ERPs. To do their job effectively, he describes a culture of teamwork that extends to even incorporating the fans, the customers, into the team too. Enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the president and chief product and technology officer of Epicor, Imanshu Paul Soleil. Imanshu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. Glad to be here. All right, right out the gate. Epicor is a huge company. We looked it up on LinkedIn, over 4,000 employees. But for our audience that may or may not know what Epicor does, can you please explain what Epicor does for your customers? Absolutely. So Epicor Software, www.epicor.com, we are a leading provider of what we call enterprise resource planning software, or as you all may have heard, ERP. We focus on uh, vertical industries. We specialize in customers that are manufacturers, distributors, retailers, and in the business of lumber. And essentially what ERP is, it's the backbone of your business. Everything from order processing, managing your inventory, working with your vendors, managing the workflow of inventory, taking orders, placing orders, processing payments, the entire gamut. And our customers genuinely call it the backbone of their business is what we do. And, you know, very proud of the customer set. We have about 20,000 customers worldwide. They, they all are businesses that's, you know, are essential in what they do. They specialize in uh, the art of manufacturing distribution. And uh, we are proud to be a strong partner for them. Now, when you guys on the website, it talks about how your proponents, big proponents of small businesses, I guess at what stage of a business does someone need an ERP to begin with? And for those who are unfamiliar, I think most of us are familiar with ERPs, but if you could go ahead for the people that are not familiar with what exactly an enterprise resource planning tool does, I think that'll help provide some scope and scale for what people are, so they can conceptualize this. But I'd love to hear your perspective on when does a business kind of start to need one? 
Yeah, great question. Let's start with the journey. So small businesses, when they get founded, you know, their concern is around productivity, efficiency, revenue. You know, companies that are, let's say, five employees, 10 employees, you know, they focus on accounting. They focus on knowing enough about when am I going to run out of inventory? How should I price this item at? And that's the early start of ERP. Most of those companies are usually running some form of what's called an accounting software with some visibility into their operation. You start getting to a $10 million company and you start growing. Now your concerns start to broaden. You're worried about e-commerce. You're worried about your sales pipeline. You're worried, you know, where are your customers? What are they buying? What are the trends in the market? And at that point of inflection, let's say you're about 10 to 25 million, you start worrying about an end-to-end system, which is essentially what an ERP is. So you've graduated from, you know, maybe you're using a little expense tool, you're using a CRM tool, you're using some accounting product, and now you're saying, wait a minute, this just got a little more complex. I have, I have people in various geographies. I've opened a couple of warehouses. I have a couple of stores. I now need a broad picture. And that's when ERP starts becoming important. It starts at that point, and then really it starts to scale. And you know, large Fortune 50 companies use ERPs in very different ways. Uh, and I say, when you're small, you're using ERP to make sure you're making enough revenue. When you get really large, you're using ERP to make sure you have optimized efficiency in everything you're doing. And that kind of is a spectrum. Yeah. The unique perspective for Mission is we get to meet with business leaders in all different stages of business, right? From single solopreneurs who have developed a product and are selling it for the first time through e-commerce to some of the biggest companies in the world. And one of the things that you find out, and we it, it's just hard to fathom, is when you first start out, you don't have enough money for tools. So you kind of just create tools. And the, your first ERP for most inventory-based businesses is usually Excel. Right. It's just you keeping everything in Excel, exactly. keeping all that together. Uh, eventually, as you scale, like you mentioned, you start putting these things together. And you know, one of the big challenges people we've encountered and see of business leaders when they first start thinking about do they need this is they they're not quite sure what they would do with this extra information. Do you see that still, or do you start seeing like people start ascending to a scale where they're like, hey man, if I knew more information about where this product was coming from, how long the lead times were, if I could order it a little bit faster, all these things would work out. There's always that gap we see from business owners where they're not quite ready to invest in technology because they don't feel like it's going to deliver enough value. How does Epicor approach that? Because one of the things I see on your website is that you've like partitioned it. Like you've partitioned your product offering so that maybe, is that how you thought of it? It's like, hey, we'll solve these entrepreneurs' problems one problem at a time versus like, hey, you got to install all this software to, to make it work. You absolutely nailed it. If we are being true to serving our customers, which we are, you start by asking the question, what's the most immediate problem you're trying to solve? Yeah. And why are you looking for an ERP? Is this your first one? Did the previous one fail? Are you looking for something more specialized? Was it technology? Is it functionality? Is it geographic expansion? I think in a good sales cycle, which involves our implementation services, you're really understanding that because at the end of the day, an entire ERP can be quite overwhelming because it's touching every aspect of your business. That starting point is important. And often starting points are either driven by a CFO who says, I just need a better picture of my cash. I need to understand my 
my pricing, my you know inventory levels, my margins, my discounts, and then that's a great place to start. Then you say, great, let's get your financials going. You then have you know the salespeople saying, and you know Salesforce is an example that has made a big business out of solving for. I don't know where my revenue is. You know, I, I don't know at what stage is it being stuck. Yeah, when's it coming? When's it coming? How is it coming? And and what's the seasonality of it? And then you get into order processing, and then you're installing sales order and uh, purchase order, vendor management, and all of that. You have an IT organization that's quite keen on data and intelligence because they have to create all these dashboards for their executives. Then you start putting in things like business intelligence you start creating dashboards and portals and all of that. And then you get the users in. And so typical implementation of ERP, if done right, starts with, I use a bowling pin analogy. What's that first bowling pin you want to knock down? What is it for you? Because it may be very different from your peers. Let's get that. And then let's, you know, let's use that network effect to have that first pin knock the next two and the next three, et cetera. But starting with that is important. Where implementations go wrong, and you know we've all seen and heard the horror stories, is either the vendor is trying to push too much too soon, mm. or the customer has an ambition greater than their ability to deal with business transformation. Yeah, that makes total sense because a lot of that's our na- it's it's in our nature, whether we're a CEO or just an individual at home, that when we buy something, we want to consume. <laughs> all of its value quickly, right? We, we, we just, we just want to consume all of its value. We don't think to ourselves like, Hey, let's eat a little bit at a time. Talk a little bit about that because that is an uphill battle. If you're fighting someone who wants to consume everything at once, but they haven't, you know, they haven't trained their people. They haven't upgraded their processes. You know, when it comes to, for example, in supply chain, we do know that there's a lot of industries where there's a lot of paper still. There's not, it's the data is not even available to be converted to like data. It's, it's in paper, it's in different systems, it's in old legacy systems. How do you walk someone through that? Because I can see that a CEO just being like, hey, come on, you, I want this whole thing implemented tomorrow. But you just know you can't eat that much right out the gate. Right. Yeah. I think our services people are trained. I mean, I get pulled into a lot of prospect calls, especially the larger ones. You know, mm. I end up being their executive sponsor. And I tell them right up front, and the salespeople are on the call when I say this. I said, for the seller, getting your business is important. For me, getting you as a reference customer is important. So we will be you know, very deliberate and mean purposeful in what we tell you. So oftentimes, actually, it's a combination of the CEO who is either just you know, ambitious about his or her growth or tired with the past system, who's forcing their organization to, you know, the word digital transformation now comes up everywhere. You have the CFO who's kind of gating that already with things like capital outlay, cash flow, and the CIO is bringing an angle on, yeah, but what about security and deployment and, and all of that? I think us kind of playing coach in that field as decisions are being made is the best place to be for a vendor because you you create a lot of credibility and you build relationships early. We believe that, you know, repeat business in ERP, ERP is quite sticky, right? People don't come to work every day saying, hey, I need a new ERP. <laughs> yes, it's, it's not something people want to change ever, really. Really. And then, so we know that if we solve their top problems now, there's a lot of modules they're going to buy from us down the road. And we have we have these things called value workshops where every year we go back we understand how your business runs and you know we we pick up the cost for all of this and then we share best practices from peers 
And we know at that point, they're going to more, buy more from us. Because at that point, they're saying, yeah, I always wanted to understand about business intelligence and artificial intelligence, or I finally want to get going with IoT. But trying to cram all of that up front to get you know, a big price ticket, I think is a mistake. Because then you're dealing with customer sat issues, and you don't want to go down that road. Yeah, it's one of those things that we hear a lot in the philosophy of enterprise software, which is enterprise software vendors. They don't, you know, people don't just switch. You, you've been fired. And I got to also believe that once you get fired, I'm not really going to give you a second chance because it's too timely. It's too expensive. You already said it. If I want to implement ERP, I really don't want to do multiple times. I don't come in every day thinking, oh, I need a new one. Right. So if you bring me on a bad path, I can see that like you'll, you might lose that business forever. People remember, and this is a big reference business. People buy from people, people talk to people. And it's, it's going to be typically the largest capital purchase that a company is going to make. Really? So you don't want to get that wrong. Yeah. And, you know, CIOs, you know, end up becoming great partners with us because they have skin in the game as well because they recommended that product. So getting that right. And, I, you know, as a company, I talked about our industry focus. What we go out directly and say is we serve markets that make, move, and sell products. Yeah. If you don't make something, you don't move something, and you don't sell something, you know, we may not be the best product out there. There may be others. You know, if you're purely in some form of services, you're doing financial services, you know, ERP will work for you. But where our value proposition, this whole essential business's value proposition becomes real is this whole make, move, sell, which is you know, taken on really well in the markets. So one of the challenges we see with big platform systems, which is which I would call an ERP a big platform system, is there's always point solution providers that are coming out. There's a lot of point solution companies that build point solutions. And we're, we live in an API world where they're going to build APIs so that that information can move into an ERP. Uh, I know that there's an ecosystem to support ERPs, app makers. And so talk a little bit about that challenge because you know, one of your biggest competitions, uh, I guess, on the Epicor product side is also, is it, do you feel like it's the point solutions or do you feel like the point solutions further enhance your customers? So it's fine if they plug into Epicor, it's fine. You know, you're in this interesting spot because you need the network. You need the customer to be happy with their their ecosystem, right? Not the, the ecosystem, the network. Like they have to be happy with the ecosystem, the third-party providers, the point solution providers. They all want the good things of that there. And you're also in charge of the product of Epicor. So you're also probably being tasked to develop products, platform services that are on par or probably better than what the point solution providers are providing. Give us an idea of that kind of how you weigh your decisions in product. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. It, it is a balance, right? And I've been doing ERP for 31 years and the trends we've gone from everything's best of breed is where ERP really started. You know, ERP yeah. back in the eighties used to be you stitched a lot of applications together. You, you didn't have RESTful APIs, but you did it. There was a lot of data transfer. Then came the era of all-in-one. ERP meant everything you bought was from the ERP provider. Frankly, the web and the cloud started breaking that myth because you, know, you, you could start with CRM or you could start with payroll or you could start with payments and then do the whole ERP. And now we've gone full circle back where in the cloud, I tell my employees, and my customers that you won't even know all the stuff that in the cloud that your business will use over a period of time. Yeah, It could be document management, could be email, could be CRM, could be payroll, could be payment. So I use the concentric circle analogy. 
there is a center, which is our core, which we have to nail. If we start relying on someone else to do that, then fundamentally we, we don't have it right. And that's your, your, your inventory management, your auto processing, your financial integrity, you know, reporting and, and all of that. Typically when people buy that from a vendor, they want it from one vendor. Then the next circle gets into how are you doing your manufacturing? How are you doing your warehouse management? How's your supply chain working? 75 to 80% is vendor managed, I mean, the single vendor, and then you start getting some point solutions. My point is, as you move out on the concentric circles, you have to respect and appreciate that someone's doing something way better than you can ever imagine doing it yourself. Think about, you know, multi-jurisdictional payroll, look at complex taxation, like all those things. So yeah, I know what these things are. <laughs> so we, at that point, have an option for the customers. We say, as an ERP provider, we have the 40 modules and we do all of this. If you're looking for light CRM, light HCM or payroll, you're looking for some expense management, we got it. And if you want a single throat to choke, that's a great way to go. If you're getting specialized and you have some complex business operations, the way you're doing billing is, is very critical to you and you already have a bespoke relationship. You've been using Salesforce all your life and all your forecasts are in Salesforce. You may have ADP as your payroll provider when we came in. We absolutely need to respect that space and have open APIs, have sort of that integration layer that we use today to be able to connect quickly with them. And as long as we position the pros and cons early and also leave it at the, at the point of sale that, you don't know over the next three years what else you're going to get, either through an acquisition or you know, organic growth. Mm-hmm. As long as we can fit into that ecosystem, we'll always be your best ERP. So I make sure we never fight for things that you know, might add one more module and, and sort of get that ARR ticked up another percent if there was someone there that does it you know, very specialized for that customer. Now, we have over 100 ISVs that we support out of the box. Yeah. And these are our partners and partnerships. They're often that last mile. It could be a very specialized way in which uh, process manufacturing is done, you know, recipe management is done. And we integrate that. So when you buy from us, a lot of that is white labeled as our product or can be added on. That's our preference because we are still the one throat to choke when you have an issue and you're calling a support line. So the world is more and more becoming API driven. And I think, you know, I have right through, I mean, maybe 20, 25 years ago, I thought about it differently because you can't want to control that whole experience. But we are in a world where you're going to have to coexist with a lot of others uh, as good as you. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you mentioned earlier in that answer, which was awesome, by the way, is kind of how you prioritized. You have identified those, these priorities. Like, hey, you're, you've said, hey, Epicor, we're going to be great at these things. And these are the next things we're going to be great at. And you mentioned by the third layer, it's like, hey, we might not be the best. So we got to make sure maybe your APIs, maybe our infrastructure is the best so that it's easy for really good developers to plug into our system and further enhance our customers' experiences. How did you come up with that prioritization? Was it through experience? Was it through something unique at Epicor, because you mentioned you had 30 years plus of ERP experience. How did you identify those? And then this is a tack on question. Since you're newer to Epicor, were those priorities in place before you got there? I'd love to understand how those priorities came about. Yeah. Very astute question. 
I think it's both. I think it's experience, right? You, you do this all your life and you know that there is a certain set in your toolkit that has to be yours, that, that cannot be compromised. Yeah. And then markets evolve. I mean, the world of CRM 10 years ago started evolving into you know, a couple strong players. Right. The world of payroll started to evolve that way and so on and so forth. So you know, having that market intelligence to understand you know, who has the largest footprint, we are also very acquisitive. We've acquired companies. We've we've made five acquisitions in the last two and a half years. When we started seeing someone who was going to be that next one, you know, we bought them. So they they used to be a standalone document management system that was best in class. Docstar, we bought them. There was a best in class EDI called One EDI. We bought them. There was a very specialized warehouse management software for lumber merchants called Major Data. We bought them. We just bought a configure price 3D coding tool. So you got that as well. I've been at Epicor for a little over five years. The thing you see at companies like Epicor, when you say deep industries, we mean deep industries, right? Manufacturing is not a vertical for us. That, that's almost like a horizontal. Yeah. When you get into aerospace and defense or get into metals, you get into process, you get into you know a, a, any of these petroleum pipes and valves, there are bespoke companies in that space that are a default for what you do. I'll give you an example. You know, we, we have a big retail business, you know, Ace Hardware stores, large, large customer of ours. Yeah. And then you start getting into lawn and garden, which is a sub-vertical. Well, they typically have someone that's doing the GMO seeding uh, uh, tracking. You get into pet, there's someone that's doing pet reservations. We are not getting, going, we are not getting into those businesses what we are going to do is integrate those businesses. So today, if you go into a lawn and garden store or uh, you know a medical devices space, typically we know who they're going to bring up as vendors that they use for you know very specific tasks. And right up front, we'll say, by the way, here's an integration that we have in that space. So that that last mile keeps getting a little shorter as you go, but it goes really deep in terms of the must-have that companies do. I mean, the easiest example is sort of a pet grooming service. There, there is one large reservation management software out there. They're like the Yelp for that. You know, why am I going to go and try to displace them? That, that wouldn't be a good decision. So, so then we would go and integrate with them. The same with pharmacy, the same with sporting goods. So that kind of is how we see our ecosystem broadened. Oh, man, you just revealed some wild information. Whenever you think a market's too small, it's like, like you. If you told me there was a specialty software for just booking pets for grooming, I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, I was like, that's that's not done in some of the booking system. Like, yeah, it, all these crazy tools. <laughs> and then once you get in, the the benefit of being focused at that industry, once you get good at that, it's very easy to become that default. You know that that Yelp example that yeah that I was giving. So Ace Hardware stores, you know, specialty hardware stores, they all have their own rebate engine, the way, you know, Ace does loyalty programs. It's so specific to their success that once we get in and solve that, all of a sudden, you know, that market, the total addressable market starts to expand very quickly. So how do you, how do you go about prioritization? Because it's one of the interesting things about CTOs and product officers, technology officers, we know that you talk to a lot of customers. That's a fact, right? But the reality is you have a lot more customers than a lot of other businesses. <laughs> so I know you can't talk to everybody, <laughs> because, but how do you go about this 
this is a major challenge of every product officer is prioritization. How do you prioritize? And what do you say yes to when you say pass on or, you know, maybe later? Because I'm sure you're brought ideas or systems every single day from every industry. Someone's got, a, it sounds like some, every industry has got like a new tool. Like, Hey, can you integrate this? Hey, do you have a solution for that? There's constantly going to be people bringing ideas to you. So like, if it, cause like, even if it's inside of your, you mentioned like the three levels, even if there's something inside level one, I'm sure you're still saying no to things. I don't know. Like, do you say yes to everything inside level one? Like I'm curious. No. So, <laughs> and this gets into the heart of release planning and scope management, right? Cause again, as developers and product managers will always say, you know, I have a 10 pound bag. What is the 10 pounds of functionality that you want to put in my bag? And if you bring in 20 pounds, what are we going to do about it? We're either going to get a bigger bag or we're going to fill the 10 and prioritize that. So um, I'll answer it in a couple of ways and I'll give you some examples. Yeah. The broadest way we do it, and, and this is a standard process in, in most companies that run agile software, is you know, it's voice of customer, which comes in in many ways. There is the highly processed way, which is in our product, we have the ability for anyone at any time to go and vote for a certain feature. Say so they're running a report and you thought a report had something and it didn't have it. You can press a button, a little window pops up and you go into your comment. If there are more customers who've done that, you can put a star on how important it is. We get it instantly. We, we use a software called AHA, A-H-A, yep. which is quite popular. And then AHA starts populating the request that came in and the, the severity of uh, those requests. So that's one. Second is we have our support lines. When they call into support and you put a support ticket, you know that gets translated into a system that we use internally as a request. So there are various ways. There's sales, there's services, there's me, there's people who always think there is one more good idea that can be put in. <laughs> and then there is the way in which we have customer advisory boards. We meet every quarter, typically face-to-face -face meetings, and we put up a topic in front of a customer advisory board. We put up a trend. You know, it could be anything from, it could be blockchain, could be augmented reality, could be uh, GDPRS, could be data sovereignty. And then we brainstorm and we, get a, we, we put it to vote and we get that feedback. We have user groups that happen all over the country pretty much every month. There's some user group going on. We get that information in. And so there, there is a very process-driven, it's all you know, documented on our portal sites. Anyone from the CEO can go in, take a look at what is likely candidate for the next release because we do a spring release and a fall release and then we have many minor releases in between typical SaaS cadence. And then what happens is you get a large prospect or a customer that gives you a problem. Because what, Albert, what I think, if people ask me, what is it you do uniquely at Epicor? I say we problem solve. We get more excited, the more complex the problem. So I'll give you an example. We had a metal manufacturer in uh, the steel industry in the UK, second largest steel company in the world. And they had gone through a many, many million ERP implementation with you know, one of the top ERP providers and we know their names and it had failed. And mm -hmm. they came to us and said, we don't think you guys can do it, but here is our challenge if you can solve it. He says, we get metal that's delivered, steel delivered in poundage, right? This is molten steel that comes in hundreds of thousands of pounds we make metal sheets out of it and we sell it in square feet, square yards, square meters. Throughout our entire project, we want every aspect of the 
unit of measure of, of a square foot to be tracked back to the pound of steel that came in. And we want it through MRP, we want it through purchasing, because the price of steel, steel's, you know, it's a commodity that we want to be able to use that to head some of the way in which we acquired steel. So we said, great, love it. So that, because it was a large deal, and my product manager went and assessed the size of the steel industry, and he said, if we can get this one, we got another five that we can go after. And all of a sudden, on a perfectly planned spring release, something came right ahead of it, which is you know, multiple units of measure. How do we take a problem where you have a unit of measure that's very different than the finished product and then build these crazy algorithms to match it all the way? So that, that's the if you can do that as an agile, adaptable company, and I got plenty of examples of what COVID did in changing our priorities. And so I always tell people there's a very structured way to do it. And then there is that one phone call where you sit saying, hey, folks, hold the press. There's an interesting angle here that could get us into a new space. So I think it's a combination. Now that's a fascinating challenge. You know, when you sat down, I'd love to hear like, because it sounds like you've built a good culture of innovation and problem solving. You mentioned before Epicor's number one skill is actually problem solving. So when you grabbed your team and put them in the room and told them the steel problem, what was their initial reaction? Because I've heard, and I've also experienced, sometimes when you bring the problems to an engineer, their first reaction is, oh, that can't be done. And then you start saying, okay, but if it could be done, how would we start? (laughs) What was the reaction when you brought this to the team where they're like, oh, no problem. I already know the answer on the back of a napkin. Or was there some resistance? <laughs> yeah, the, certainly the, there was a debate. We, we have a, what we call Epicor Labs. It's a small team of about you know, 10 people. And then we rotate people through the labs. And that's where they look at, you know, they look at all, all the evolving technologies. And I have some great examples of things we looked at. So the, the person who runs the lab, who's also you know, my chief architect, I, I called him and I said, Stephen, we have a problem to solve. And, and he's a specialist. He's been doing this for 20, 30 years. Because you got to understand the domain, right? You can't just give it to a fresh engineer and say, solve this. you got to understand what... The thing that will typically happen at Epicor, because we have people who've been here for 30, 35 years. We have people who joined you know, a few months ago, and they're both very important to what we do. What the people with experience will come and say is, let me give you a couple of use cases of something very similar that we had done in the past, and maybe we can try to fit that use case into this situation. The people who've been here with some of the newer technologies will say, well, you know, the way you solved it then was the right solution, but the mapping can be done in a more elegant way with, you know, some, some of the shorter data payloads uh, that are in play, et cetera. I think leveraging that conversation, having a genuine brainstorming session, because, you know, you mentioned engineers are sometimes resistant. I see the opposite. Engineers sometimes oversubscribe to the art of the possible without kind of thinking of the guardrails around, you know, time and budget and cost. <laughs> so you have to be able, and, you know, I personally feel the need at that times like this to be involved, not as the smartest guy in the room, because I, I won't be, but as someone who's sort of providing those guardrails, kind of the coach on the court to let this brainstorming happen. This took place literally for three days. And someone said, let me build a prototype on what I have in mind that we have done before for another customer and the prototype was nothing but a mapper. It was a unit of measure mapper saying, you know, you put X on this side, Y on that side. And here are something in our product that we called BPMs, business process methods. Here are the BPMs that we would have to define to convert A to B. 
We said, fine, you know, test it out. And then the complexity starts. Then you sit in front of a customer and he's like, okay, yeah, you just solved my easiest problem. <laughs> now let me add a few variables to that. You know, let me tell you that, you know, there's a currency conversion issue. There is a loss issue because steel gets lost in this and we want to track loss. We want to track all of that. But then you iterate and, and we got it. I mean, we nailed it. We, we gave it to them. We got the account. We have three more large steel manufacturers we are talking to right now who either, you know, they, they've solved it in some way, but, and then it got us into other adjacent industries. Anytime when the incoming material is very different than the outgoing material, could be food processing, you know, the way what you're getting in is very different than what you're getting out. But that, that's kind of how that innovation cycle works. And sure. I tell people, don't try to make it too linear. Don't try to over-define it. You know, don't try to write a process document around it. Let that just happen sometimes because that's the best way to solve it. No, that's super fascinating because I'm sure once they, because like you said, the core of the problem is that because they couldn't track it, there were other inefficiencies in their processes, right? They couldn't order it properly. They couldn't plan for it properly. They couldn't estimate how much they were losing. Now you've brought this all together. And even like you said before, that this is what happens to companies is they develop systems and processes to fix one thing, but because it's not integrated to anything else, it's not nearly as useful. So you mentioned before these other steel companies, they had figured out ways to calculate raw material to final product, but then what? Like they probably didn't have a way to get that data over to their buyers fast enough to procure raw material in the right way or plan it based on their capacity. So there's probably a lot of inefficiencies. And then that makes total sense. Give us an idea from the moment you were presented the challenge, to the moment you had a customer accepted solution, how long did that window take? It said you took three days to get to the guy the, for the person to step up and be like, I have an idea. Give us an idea from request to acceptance. How long did that take? So I, if I remember right, the, and, and this is a British company, and we, we had our teams over working this problem. So three weeks for us to go back and tell them that we can solve this problem, wow. right? So come back and say, we, we have a plan, but now we're going to need a lot of data. We're going to have to work together on this because you know we're solving this problem for you to begin with. And then if I remember right, I'll give you a range so that I'm stating this accurately, I think three to five months to have it where they were in production after they, you know, so they bought the software, they implemented it. After they implemented the core product, for them to be up and running and using this efficiently, let's say the outside was about five months. That's fast. That is fast. But it, it also goes to how clear the customer was and what a strong understanding they had of the problems to be solved, right? They wanted to know their losses. They wanted to know, you know, the bad debt that they would have to write up. Then they needed to know inventory levels and management. So they gave us a very select set of problems to solve, which made it easy versus, you know, sometimes if the customer oftentimes doesn't exactly know what the solution is or the problem is, then you tend to oversolve it and you make it too generic. With these people, because they have, like I said, they they spent five years with another product. They knew exactly what they wanted. And that's why we could do it in five months. Yeah, that makes total sense. When I used to work in software, I remember being on the sales side, not the product side, but we would often field requests. I would always ask customers, I'd push back on them like, well, if you have this, what will you do with it? Right. Yeah. And I knew I was in trouble when they couldn't explain what they were going to do with it. <laughs> then you don't need it. And if you don't need it, and I have my engineers build this, if I go to the product meeting and I fight for this on the sales side, then they'll build something you don't use. And if you don't use it, it doesn't matter. Exactly right. So understanding exactly what to do with it. Now, in that story, there's clearly a unique 
culture that you've developed, right? This problem solving culture. And we also know engineering talent. This is one of the things that every CTO is facing. Every product officer is facing is the competition for talent. Talk a little bit about what is it beyond like, you know, capability. Yes, you need skills, or maybe you don't even need all the skills. You just need the will to learn and problem solve. I'd love to hear your hiring philosophy because Sounds like you've built a pretty unique culture that invites these problems in. I just, I explained to you a culture I came from that didn't like problems. Like every time you brought something to an engineer at a company I was at, they were like, ah, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to think about that. Talk about what you do in regards to recruiting to get these people. Cause the next wave of problem solvers, as you know, they're highly coveted. <laughs> a lot of people want them to work for someone else, you know? Yeah. Talk about how you guys go about getting that talent and retaining that talent to do what you guys can do. I think for any CTO, the top two challenges that should be keeping them up night today is cybersecurity and talent management. You have to, because it's not, it's not a one and done, it's a journey. You, you got to stay ahead of it because there, there's people competing for the same resources. So here's a couple of uh, benefits that we have. We have global centers of excellence that were developed over many years. We have about you know 500 plus people in Bangalore, India. We have 700 people plus in Monterey, Mexico, 100 people in Moscow, Russia, about 100 people in the UK, and then you know, a large team in, in the US. What we did, and I, you know, I've managed outsourcing and offshoring for, for many years in my career. When I came up here, I said, what works best in um, multi-disciplined, multi-regional product teams is centers of excellence versus staff augmentation. Like, don't go into a country because, and, and we had tried, we went to Vietnam and we were there for a little while, but don't go into a country just because you think you have access to affordable labor because you will, it'll, it might work for a little while, you'll lose it to somebody else. So the reason for centers of excellence, it then allows us to hire in that region something that is very specific that we train for. So we have very strong internship programs in both Bangalore and in Mexico. And, and we also have them in the U.S., but it's really strong in those two regions. We work with universities. We include our curriculum in some of the schools that uh, things are taught. So when an intern joins, and then you know, both India and Mexico have a unique way of doing internship. You actually, a year of work is part of their curriculum. So they, they work with us for a year as part of their degree that they're getting. And we really start training them on things that are very specific to us. We have a whole division called Epicor University. It's a large team that focuses on training both customers and employees. And we start getting them good at that stuff. You know, it could be QA automation uh, in Mexico. It could be mobile center of excellence in Bangalore. And then we have a team of industry-focused functionality. When we do a release, we have these swim lanes you know, usability, industry functionality, technology, global expansion, et cetera. If you work in that industry functionality swim lane, we have to teach you parts of that industry that you need to understand and be good at. We have product managers. I mean, literally, we have a product manager who used to drive a forklift in a warehouse. He now is the head product manager for our distribution product. We have people, I'm just hiring one. I interviewed one the other day and they started their career in manufacturing. They were in hardware manufacturing. They understand manufacturing. He had a small business where he sold stuff. He understands e-commerce. So it makes it a little harder because we are looking for specialized skills, not generic skills. But if you get those in and you train them, 
you know, our knock on wood, our attrition rates are a tick below what the standard in the industry is. Like I said, we have people who've been here. We, we regularly get emails of 40th anniversary, 45th anniversary. There's one person, 30th anniversary. And these are the subject matter experts. These are the people like the metal example. You know, there, there will be some vertical that they are so specialized in that, you know, they're more than worth their, their value in gold. So I, I wish... Albert, there was an easy answer. It has become a bigger problem with the whole, you know, hybrid work models because some of the intrinsic advantages campuses have are now being replaced by technology. It's something we try to stay ahead. But I think centers of excellence, internship, leveraging some of the mentors who've been here for a long time and giving them, you know, we had to start a dual career path because you don't have to be a director or a VP to, you know, earn a lot of money. You can be a advisory engineer, you can be a fellow. You, so we had to focus on all those minute details to be able to retain people. Hey, listen, there's no, there's no clear cut answer, right? Because everyone is going to do something different to fight for this talent. So everyone's just in this constant battle. But I think your guess is just as good as any. The idea of this localization, the idea of hiring people with unique talents, domain experience to enter jobs they may not be familiar with, I think is a wise move. I mean, Hopefully more companies are using that because like you already suggested, you sometimes get solutions that you're maybe you're a normal engineer with a standard background just you wouldn't have come up with. Uh, so the deep domain experience you're looking for, all this different variety. I mean, it's as good of a plan as any other. Exactly. You got to work it. You got to <laughs> rotate these people, put them in Epicor Labs for three months so that they're off their you know regular stress of getting a release out. We operate pretty flat. I mean, including our CEO, Steve Murphy, who's in a a process engineer himself, we are all roll up your sleeves and go talk to the person who has the answer versus sort of go down a hierarchy of people. And if you're good at, if you want to succeed at Epicor, you need to be comfortable with that. You don't, you shouldn't interject yourself in as a manager saying, well, you didn't run that by me first. It's like, yeah, because you probably didn't have that answer. So I, I didn't go to you. <laughs> I love it. I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries, sharing some of the vision, some of the ways you attack the problems at Epicor. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Imanshu, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. You have a blog. We found a blog site that you, you used to run. It looks like it hasn't been updated since 2016. Why haven't you been blogging? <laughs> I need to get back and blog. You know, I, I'm involved in universities. I'm doing some teaching and sharing. So I, as long as I can get, you know, whatever little knowledge I've gained over the last 30 years out, I'm happy. But thank you for the reminder. And just for you, you know, in the next 30 days, I'll go put a blog, blog post out. Yeah. Listen, at the time of your last writing, you said your passions are technology, travel, photography, wildlife, and quantum physics. Are those things still true? Very true. Yeah, probably less quantum physics because, you know, I don't have the time to do deep thinking, but everything else for sure. So are you an avid photographer? I love photography. I, I Yes, I am. What do you like to take pictures of? Mostly nature, mostly outdoors, mostly situations in nature is, you know, something intriguing. It could be a cloud on top of a sunset. It could be a plane on the backdrop of, you know, a blue sky. It could be, you know, I used to go to Africa a lot. And that's like just the paradise of event-based photography. So that, that's what I love doing. That's what I was my next question, because people who tend to be photographers tend to go to places. You mentioned Africa. 
what are some of the more unique places photography has taken you? Yeah. So I, I, do, I scuba dive. Oh, wow. So, you know, anything from Cozumel, Cancun to Catalina. I enjoy the, the, the little stuff, you know, because everyone wants to photograph that barracuda that swam by. But, you know, I focus on the, the, the little things on the floor of the ocean. Uh, Peru, you know, Machu Picchu, the whole Inca civilization. What a great opportunity to go and understand that. I love that trip. And there's, there's a whole range of it. I've, I travel a lot and I'm itching to restart that again. All right. Listen, I got one question to ask when it comes to scuba diving, because it's just a personal fear of mine. I want to ask you, do you have a fear of sea caves? Do you dive into sea caves? I do get a little claustrophobic in sea caves or <laughs> wrecks. I've done a little bit of wreck diving. I'm kind of the guy who'll poke my head in with the rest of the body out of the room <laughs> rather than the person who goes in and then tries to come out the other way. It, it does get a little claustrophobic. So, yes. Okay. So, yeah. When I see people, so I've done a lot of hobbies. I have I'm a lot of outdoor hobbies as well. Surfing, going on, you know, treks through mountains, skiing, but I don't mess with caves. I'm with you there. I do not mess with caves. I've never scuba dived, but like the, the thought of going into a sea cave is just, it's just too much. I can't do it. <laughs> Respect the tide. Yeah. The one thing has even, it doesn't have to be a dive. It could be caves in the ocean. I mean, there are some in La Jolla. You take a kayak and you go in, but you respect the power of the tide because if you don't do that, there are a few surprises that'll throw you away. Uh, yeah. Listen, I, I remember the, you, I don't know if you remember this, but when the, the, the Thai soccer team got stuck in the cave yes, and the guys that went in to get them out, yeah, that was the most horrifying story that I've ever heard. The fact that these guys were swimming through caves, like bare, that they couldn't even wear a scuba tank. They had to take them off. That's how narrow it was. Yeah, I was like, I could not imagine that. But thankfully, they, they did get those people out. They did. Wow. Manchu, I appreciate you joining us today on the show. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your life. Thanks for sharing all the stuff you're working on at Epicor. It was awesome having you as a guest, man. You told some great stories. Thank you. I really enjoyed this, Albert. We, we got into some really interesting areas. So thank you. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. And thank you for uh, what, what you all do on a regular basis. I, I read your podcasts and uh, there's a lot of information in them. And it's your open style that drives that. So thank you. No, much appreciated. Yep. We just try to, we like to think of it as, we call it accelerated learning. And we, we try to teach through the experiences of those who have done it. And I think there's no better way. Thank you again and uh, have, have a great week. You too.